Welcome to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hageman, coming to you every Tuesday with our podcast extraordinaire full of random topics from all across <laughs> the years, uh, genres, whatever, whatever the case may be. So if you're into cults, cats, coffee, we came up with a few others recently, can't even remember what. <laughs> random stuff. This is the place for you. Um, as always, Jenny knows what she's about to talk about. I got no clue. So it's always fun to find out if I know anything at all about our subject. So, so Jenny, give me, give me some hints. What's the subject of the day here? Famous lawman who's had multiple movies made about him. Um, ooh, I'm going to go with Elliot Ness. No, but oh my God, what an interesting character. <laughs> so interesting. Also, not, not, not the correct time frame. Yeah. All right. Um, good old J. Edgar Hoover. Um, Wait, what, what year was J. Edgar Hoover? It's not him, but I'm just okay. curious. He started maybe 30s and went through the 60s, 50s? 70s. Okay, yeah, not him, but right time frame. Okay. Smaller uh, pickle. Smaller like, pickle. Like not as big of a deal, All but right. still quite an interesting person. All right, another lawman from that time. Uh, and it's really funny that I described him as a small pickle because he's a big old man. <laughs> uh, man, I um, the dude from Walking Tall. I don't know. Yes, whatever his name is, I can't remember it. Damn, you're always good at this. Like you really, you really do knock these out occasionally, man. All right. Um. I did not write down his first name as one does. Like, what is wrong <laughs> with me? Hold on. I wrote it down like six different places. Why did I not? <laughs> Buford. I did actually write it down. Anyhow, Buford Poop. I'm going to say Pooser because I don't know how to pronounce it correctly. I think it's Pusser, but I don't actually know that for Great. sure. Great. We're going to switch immediately to Pusser. Yeah. And then I'm going to be wrong Pusser. this entire time, but you know. I mean, <laughs> no matter how we say it, it's going to be wrong to somebody. Every so. time, yeah, just our, every time I hear that name and I think of good old Buford T. Justice from Smoking the Bandits. But, you know, <laughs> this is Buford T. Justice. All right. You know what? The name Buford is just an amazing name. And I feel like we <laughs> underutilize it as humans in general. Yeah, it needs, needs to make a comeback, I think. Right? Yep. Nadine's making a comeback. How come Buford isn't? Let's get on this world. Yep. yep. All right. So, yes, it's the walking tall guy. Um, he's born in Adamsville, Tennessee. He was kind of like an enforcer of the realm early in life. Uh, by the time he's an adult, he's six foot six and 250 pounds. So he's a, a big old man, big old man. And as you do uh, at his young age, he enlisted in the Marines right out of high school but they had to discharge him because he had asthma and he was really disappointed because he, you know, it was his duty and he wanted to serve. So instead he turned to the next logical thing, which was a professional wrestling career. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Time for yeah. wrestling. 
Yeah, got into it. It's definitely the time of wrestling as opposed to. Well, especially in the South, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, he he joins the uh, semi-professional wrestling circuit um, known as Buford the Bull. And then one day he meets his wife, Pauline, and her two children. And he says, that's it. I'm in. So they get married in Chicago in 1959, where he's working for the Union Paper Bag Company for a few years. And then he's like, you know what? I don't want to work at this bag company forever. Let's go back home to Adamsville. So 1962 rolls around and they move back to where he grew up. And he joins the same police department that his father worked at. So his father was once the chief of Adamsville's police department. And he becomes immediately employed. And by the time he's 25, he's elected the police chief and a constable. So like... (laughs) Moving along right into step, right? After two years, he's the sheriff. And um, I'm sorry. After two years, he becomes the sheriff because the sheriff of McNary is killed in a car accident. So at the age of 27, he's the youngest sheriff in all of Tennessee's history. Pretty big deal. Even though he's a pretty young sheriff, he's very dedicated to enforcing the law and protecting his community. Super strong moral compass, and he's very dedicated to aligning his community with what he thought were the correct morals. Is this the movie that Clint Eastwood is in? Who's the walking tall actor? I don't. I will look it up as we are. <laughs> I've never like actually seen any rock. of the movies. I just know they exist. So, yeah, there's like three or four of them. So it looks like the rocks in one of them, maybe. I think he's in like the new stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They have the old the old movies in the 70s. Yeah. Anyhow, sorry, distraction. I was like I just in my head as I was reading this whole story, um, I I was seeing Clint Eastwood, so it's really interesting they picked the rock. Anyhow. Yep. So just for the heck of it, it's uh Jodon Baker was the the guy that played him in the old walking tall stuff. Hmm. No idea who that is. So as he steps into the role of sheriff, he quickly learns that his predecessor um was complicit into a lot of organized crime in the region it's really not an uncommon story in the south um there's a lot of organized crime that has infiltrated police departments and a lot of that has to do with small towns and like long running reigning families Mm -hmm. and so it's not like i said super uncommon in the south especially in some of these really famous like true crime stories so the group that he's in the mix with is a moonshining ring. It's run by the Dixie Dixieland Mafia and the State Line Mob. So I didn't know anything about these two places. So I was like, I must learn. So the Dixie I Mafia. Am, I don't know about anything about either of those. So yeah. Oh, really? Okay. This is great then. Yeah. Um, if you couldn't tell, they are Dixieland and the State Line. So like right there, they run the borders yeah. is essentially the big thing. So the Dixie Mafia were started in the Appalachian states, um, and they had a lot of regionalism during the Whiskey Rebellion and the secession movement. And briefly, um, Franklin or Eastern Tennessee was like their own secessionist territory. Hmm. So they had this view that the federal government is oppressive and a criminal enterprise against it is justified um, to spread from its place of origin to wealthier regions. So Dixie Mafia operates primarily in Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama, um, particularly like Birmingham, Baton Rouge kind of regions, Dallas, Atlanta. 
some of their criminal activities were in more obscure areas and some of them weren't. So like they just were very diverse. So it made it hard to find them. Dixie mafia commits most of their crimes in areas that lack strong coordinated law enforcement, particularly small communities. And in doing so, they commit a lot of murders, a lot of intimidation and other sorts of activities that could place take place with a lot less risk of law enforcement being able to directly link the organization. So this is when you get a lot of small town county law enforcement agencies um, that are inadequately equipped, inadequately staffed, inexperienced. They just really could not keep up with this crime wave. Okay. And they are that interesting like mafia mix, very similar to like what we view as the traditional Italian mafia. You have small legitimate businesses that are buying and selling a lot of things like particularly antiquities or junk was really popular which hmm. makes me think of the show antique uh no what is that show uh the picker show oh the um is pickers no what is it that's one american of them pickers? I, I think i think i know what you're talking <laughs> yeah american pickers on history yeah, yeah. channel yeah and they go to people's houses that have like centuries worth of junk in their the, these mm-hmm. are basically potentially parts of the Dixie Mafia. Um, anyhow, sorry, I got distracted. So these businesses provide funds for the operators to buy and sell stolen items provi- provided by other people within the network. And they basically operate until they arise, arouse suspicion, and then they move to another location. Most of the Dixie Mafia were former state or federal prisoners. So they already were kind of... Um, in the know of criminal activity and they were recruited while they were in prison one of the things they looked for were particularly violent criminals that were about (laughs) to be released to join nice um they're well known for using violence to collect debt owed to them and gambling houses and strip clubs so this was just part of it and over time, they developed this huge presence within the local law enforcement system. So the FBI reports on this infiltration, saying it's basically just out of control, so much so that in 1983, federal authorities designated the entire Harrison County Sheriff's Office as a criminal enterprise. <laughs> uh, that's impressive. Right? Like, not everybody here is doing illegal shit. We're just done with it. And the Dixie Mafia sheriffs and officers are super loyal to them. They do anything and everything illegal for money, including releasing prisoners from the county jail, safeguarding shipments of drugs, and hiding fugitives. Anything you could think of, they were doing it. And in some locations, it's so bad that the cops and the sheriffs regularly extort local businesses, aided in prostitution, and in some cases murdered their own political opponents in cold blood so that they could continue pouring around. That sounds like a mess. Right. So the Dixie Mafia did a great job of digging into local law enforcement and taking over and making just a shit ton of money, right? hmm And then you have the state line mob. And, like, between the two, they kind of are a gray line, if you will. So they're separate mafia, but not. Yeah. They're not totally indistinguishable, but they are. hmm Right. So... They operate in the 50s and 60s at the Mississippi-Tennessee state line. Um, And this is in Alcorn County, McNary County, Tennessee, along Route 45. And they are the ones that, like, love to bootleg, gamble, prostitute, 
police tourists rob and murder like that was their thing they didn't get into the antique stuff as much a few of the members were from alabama and they were displaced displaced from that town when martial law was declared and the national guard had to show up so like <laughs> big business this is one of those organizations that um, there's towns that were totally operated that were like motels, restaurants, and clubs. And they were the establishment for everything. They did gambling. They did prostitution. They sold illegal moonshine and everything. So these groups, between the two of them, distilled moonshine. And then they would sell it in Tennessee and Mississippi. And then they would run between this county that he's the sheriff of. Yeah. And they just make a ton of money. And he makes it his personal mission to eradicate them in the process, right? Like, no, you guys are going to pretend to make all this money. I'm just going to get rid of all of you. And unsurprisingly, he makes a couple of enemies doing this. So in 1964, shortly after he's elected to his new role as sheriff, he's assaulted by members of the Moonshining Ring. They were trying to prevent him from shutting down their operation. While this was happening, he stabbed seven times and left for dead. Stands up, survives, and now is like, it is my mission to get rid of all moonshiners as revenge. And like, at this point, it's a revenge story and not even like a moral high ground story, right? Yeah. So he sets out with revenge on his mind and starts to raid things. And he raids 42 sills and arrests 75 moonshiners the first year after his attack. And it's not like he's only attacked once. So during all of these raids and all of these other crazy attempts to get rid of prostitution rings and gambling circles, he has several gunshot wounds and multiple assassination attempts. (laughs) Now, remember... He has a young family. Yeah. So it's kind of scary. Excuse me. I choked on my own spit for a moment. Um, In August of 1967, he receives a phone call about a disturbance just outside of town. It's pretty early in the morning. And he gets up and he's like prepping himself because he's like, I'm going to go full force because he knows that trouble is going to be involved. But for whatever reason, he's like, hey, honey, do you want to come with me? And he brings his wife along. Yeah. As you do, right? Mm -hmm. So the two of them jump into the car and drive across town. And as they're driving, another car drives up beside them and opens fire on them. His wife is killed instantly. And he receives two bullet wounds into his jaw. Um, Like some of the reports that I was reading just basically say his jaw was blown off entirely. Yeah. And it would take... A bunch of time, surgery, and patience to reconstruct his face and help him survive. Um, and if you thought that he was out hellbent for revenge before this, mm-hmm. now he's like really hellbent for revenge. So he's decided now that he's eliminating criminal rings in his neighborhood it is done so previously he was totally just driven by morality now he's driven by morality revenge and avenging his wife so he is just fucking fire and venom right Mm -hmm. so he believes this assassination attempt is related to a case from the previous year where he was shot at when he was investigating a robbery he had returned fire and killed a woman by the name of louise hathcock she was a common wildlife the common law wife of a man by the name of Kirksey Nix, who was the head of the head of the Dixie Mafia. And another report, he was like the 
lieutenant. It he was high up in the Way high up, yeah. Yeah. So at the age of 22, this guy, um, Kirksey Nix, he was caught carrying illegal automatic weapons in Fort Smith, Arkansas. An old friend of his, Wanda Jones, ran a bordello up there, and he became involved with Jones's adolescent daughter, Sherry Ra, uh, Lara. And then years later, she played a key role in operations, including direct ties to the murder of Vince and Margaret Sherry. And actually, there's a really, <laughs> this is going to sh- shock you, there's a really good documentary about um, this particular murder. And about the town that this um, group ran. I cannot remember the name of it, but it's super fascinating. Um, Anyhow, uh, so they have this investigation and they catch him. With the aid of his father's connections is how they catch most of him. But he does beat the weapons charge in Fort Smith and moves on to other crimes. And then he's suspected in a gangland murder of a gambler by the name of Harry Bennett who is trying to turn state's evidence against the Dixie Mafia. So they can't prove he was involved, but it's like one of those well-known things. Mm -hmm. And then this precipitates a string of killings that leaves 25 people dead in six states over the course of four years. So Pusser has this feeling that Nix is involved with this assassination attempt because of this long tragic backstory and then the fact that he accidentally murdered the guy's girlfriend, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But he doesn't have proof, and he can never catch anybody related to the charges. However, three of Nix's associates are killed over the next three years. Nix is finally in prison for committing yet another murder. And there's, like, rumors that Pusser is the one that killed the associates. Mm. But there's no proof. So, honestly, if it is him, he's not any cleaner than anybody else at this point. <laughs> But it sounds like Nix may have avoided being killed because he was actually in prison. If he had been there, he probably would have also died. So 1970 rolls around. And Pusser is forced to step away from his role as sheriff because of term limits. He's not allowed to run for office again. So he goes back to, instead of just being the sheriff, he's the constable. And he's like, well, I'm going to try to run for sheriff again in 1972. But he couldn't get the votes together. And then, like I said, 1973, the movie Walking Tall comes out, and it's based on his life. Then one day he's returning home from the county county fair in 1974. Um, On this same day, he had negotiated a sequel to the movie Walking Tall because, you know, they didn't get enough of his story out. When all of a sudden, his car hits an embankment and flies off the road. Here's the thing. It's weird. Right, yeah. like it's a suspicious car wreck. Mm-hmm. So here's what we know: uh, Pusser was thrown from the car after it had caught fire. He didn't survive his injuries, but no one really knows. Did he die because how? Like what caused him to just swerve into an embankment? Like nothing about it made any sense. And so the rumors, of course, um, is that Nix had organized this murder from prison, and the trooper who worked the accident later becomes the sheriff and he was suspicious in the context of the crash as well um the most suspicious part though is that he never ordered the autopsy hmm. so they didn't look for bullet holes or venom or poison interesting right i wonder if we can unearth this later uh shortly after his death community members turned his house into a museum that is dedicated to him as this law enforcer 
And he has Walking Tall, several sequels, spinoffs and remakes and songs and all sorts of other stuff. But he died very young at the age of 36. Yeah. So let's go down the rabbit hole and talk a little bit about Moonshine. Okay. Moonshine is fascinating. And it wasn't until I went to go to the Jack Daniels distillery that I realized how easy it would be for moonshiners to hide. Okay. So most places that create bourbon, moonshine, liquor during Mm -hmm. Prohibition, they are literally tucked into these little like wallers (laughs) that you cannot see from the road. There is no road, of course, during this time period anyway, but all they really look for is like a cave and fresh water and you have a moonshiner happening somewhere. It's fascinating. So. It's not surprising that moonshine is kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Here's what we need to know. Not all moonshine is illegal, nor is all moonshine dangerous. Because, you know, if you don't do it right, you can make somebody go blind. So historically, moonshiners made their own liquor to avoid laws, taxes, and regulations. Um, FDA inspectors do not inspect and ensure public safety, quality standards. So you could get some bad batches. um, And you could produce things like methanol which is bad because it can acidify your blood, cause blindness, a seizure, or death, you know. Yeah, not great. Have you ever had moonshine? I never have. I mean, I've seen it sold various places, at least, you know, I don't know whether that's, I'm assuming that that is just some company that's making something in the style of moonshine as opposed to like legitimate somebody up in the hills making something in their bathtub or something, but yeah. Yeah, Smoky, I think it's Smoky Mountain or Smoky Hill or whatever makes moonshine. It's not bad. Um, It tastes a little bit like straight ethanol, but anyhow. Many moonshiners in small communities had reputations to keep, so their regulars were their friends and their neighbors. Mm -hmm. If people got sick or died, they would be responsible, and then they'd be run out of business. So most of them actually did do a pretty good job making moonshine. Yeah. Um, We use the term moonshine now to describe illegal liquor. But the Alcohol, Tobacco, Tax Trade Bureau actually does have some say in moonshine these days. There's no official definition, but it's the other or specialty of classification of liquor. It's it's quite fun and it's quite flexible. Um, So one of the things about moonshine is it on its own is straight pure alcohol. Mm-hmm. But you add something fun to it, like fruit, and the fruit becomes delightful because it <laughs> enhances all the good stuff about the fruit and preserves it. Okay. And then throws you for a loop. You can have like two of those cherries before you should probably stop for normal <laughs> people. On old moonshine jugs. So um, I actually have some. They have like these brown glass jugs. Mm -hmm. And if you might remember from cartoons and stuff, they used to put X's on them. The X's. Yeah. Yeah. So a triple X meant that it was how many times it had been run through the sill. Okay. So it's like the, the clarity, if you will, because the more frequently you run it through, you get a higher pure alcohol content well above 80 ABB. Right. So it is. Good stuff. Good stuff. 
one sip and you're good. And that's why people would take like one sip and it would kick you in the butt, the pants. <laughs> so yeah, there was a lot of pride in the operations of creating this and there and making a really good product. I don't know if you know this. Moonshine inspired NASCAR. Yeah, because all their moonshine running vehicles to outrun the cops. Huh? Yeah, very. Uh, what is the the guys and the general? The general, yeah, yeah, the old Dukes of Hazard. Dukes of Hazard. Yeah, yep. it's exactly what they were doing, right? Yep. So we know that when moonshiners made the liquor, the bootleggers transport it. And bootlegger originated in the 1880s from when smugglers would hide flasks in their boot tops. So when cars enter the picture, suddenly, like, it's expanded the definition. And a lot of this came from World War II when you have soldiers returning home. They now have new mechanical skills. So they take on work as bootleggers and they start to modify cars and they maximize how much moonshine they can transport while also developing these killer driving skills so that they can evade the law. And on their free days, to do test runs, they would do the little short races against one another. Mm -hmm. And, like, it became a thing. They did it so frequently, and it became popular, and people started coming and watching it. And so then it starts the foundation of NASCAR. And NASCAR is, like, the founder... Um, Big Bill France, who gives the seed money to start NASCAR. Okay. So it really is based on NASCAR. There's even an official spirit for NASCAR from the Sugarlands Distilling Company, <laughs> which is just delightful. Uh, the first legal moonshine distillery was launched in 2005 in Madison, North Carolina. It's Piedmont Distilleries. And it's the first legal distillery since Prohibition. So it was a big, big deal. Hmm. The entire business celebrates the unique story of moonshine. So they use recipes passed down from um, legendary moonshiner and NASCAR Hall of Famer, Junior Johnson. <laughs> and um, they made the Midnight Moon moonshine. It's triple distilled. And special batches, like I said, are infused with real fruit. Real fruit makes a huge difference. And then since 2005, like a lot of people have gotten involved in moonshining and it's become quite popular. Okay. The final thing to note is Mountain Dew was originally created as a chaser for whiskey. However, it is named after the slang for Mountain Brewed Moonshine. Um, Mountain Dew is the most disgusting thing on the planet, but that's okay. <laughs> Other people like it. I just don't. I have a very strong visceral memory to it. So in 1932, Brothers Barney and Allie Hartman created the Lemon Line drink as a whiskey chaser in Knoxville. And the name Mountain Dew was selected to emphasize the intended use of the drink. So like <laughs> the original brand mascot was Willie the Hillbilly. <laughs> and his tagline was it'll tickle your innards nice that that really does not sound pleasant it doesn't yeah white lightning <laughs> is definitely kicking the pants my man it's gone from the hillbilly to the their big attempt at being like you know extreme sports drink to now being like the gamer drink so that's an interesting evolution for a beverage, isn't it? Yep. Yes, it is. 
quite the history, actually. Because, yeah, now that you've put it like that, Will. <laughs> <laughs> it's now the drink of computer science departments everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Teenage boys love it. The caffeine rate is way too high. Yeah. So that's my story. Well, today. Nice. Well, yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I remember running into moonshine, like just being going down to like Gatlinburg pigeon forge area that they had some local distilleries that were officially, you know, selling moonshine, but I hadn't had never had any. So now I'll have to give it a shot sometime, see what it's like, but they do sell little, um, individual, like shooter size. Yeah. I'm not recommending you get the whole mason jar. Maybe just a little. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta get your little brown jug, and then have your weird little way they drink from it, where they flip it over and. Right, know, right, you know. yeah. They flip it over and. Yeah, it's it. so weird how they. Yeah, it's like the some kind of. Makes me think of yeah, it's just like almost like a gang sign of hillbillies or something that you know how to drink out of a moonshine jug properly or something, but you know. Yeah. That's the part of the initiation, man. That's how yeah, they can you tell if yeah. you're legit yeah. or not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ain't some Yankee. Yeah. That's right. All right. All right. Well, cool. No, cool topic. And uh, yeah, learned a lot. So cool stuff. Um, yeah. Thanks everybody for listening this week. You know, as always, rate, subscribe, review, tell your friends about our podcast. We'll see you all in a week. Bye. Bye.